to the DNet Stumps podcast, Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket show with expert analysis by Dean Duplessis. He represented South Africa from 1995 until 2007. He captained South Africa from 2000 to 2003. He represented his country in 108 test matches, taking 421 wickets. He also scored a useful 3,782 test runs, which included 1650s and 200s. His career best with the ball was 7 for 82 against Australia in 1998, while with the bat, that was 111 versus Sri Lanka in 2000-2001. Dean at Stump's guest today is none other than Sean McLean Pollock, former South African captain and one of the finest fast bowlers the country has ever produced. Hello everybody and welcome to the Dean at Stump's podcast. My name is Dean Duplessis and it is great to have you along. Of course, lockdown still in full progress, so please make sure that you stay safe and never forget to extend a hand of friendship to those who you know are in isolation. A WhatsApp message or a phone call just to let them know that you're thinking of them, I can assure you will go a very long way just to put a smile on their face and to make make sure that they understand that they are cared for and loved as well. All right, so a nice little introduction at the top of the show. Sean Pollock is today's Dean at Stump's guest and what a real pleasure and privilege it was talking to him. Goodness me. Uh, you will hear that he speaks with his or about his faith with a great deal of uh, ease and, and he's very natural about the way that he speaks about his faith. But you'll also hear that I was taken somewhat by surprise because normally when I send a message to a player or former player I'd like to interview, it normally takes them days before they get back to me. Well, Sean Pollock was a little bit quick much quicker to respond and almost immediately sent me a WhatsApp message saying, I'm good to go when you are. (laughs) Have a listen to a bit of a surprise at the top of the show. Goodness me, I don't quite know what to say other than thank you very much for being on Dean at Stumps. I I hope you're pretty good and staying safe in these trying conditions that we find ourselves in. Yeah, thanks. Good to be on on the chat with you. uh, Yeah, this is a bit challenging. Um, I've actually been in isolation for a little bit longer than um, most of the people because I put myself into self-isolation when I came back from India, just in case. I'd spent 11 hours in Dubai waiting to catch my connecting flight. So I wasn't quite sure if anything had unfolded there or I'd picked up any virus. So I got my wife to meet me at the airport. With the, uh, came in our second car with a friend of hers and then jumped in the car, drove home and isolated myself for a week in the granny flat, but then no symptoms. So once school and everything was finished, uh, I came into the house, and so um, I think I'm on day 20. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's let's get into the meat and potatoes, as I always like to call it. You come from an incredibly talented family. Your Your dad, Peter, was a formidable fast bowler in the 1960s, led the bowling attack of South Africa with a great deal of distinction, aggression, everything that you'd want from a fast bowler. And then to top it all, your uncle Graham was, in my opinion, the finest left-handed batsman ever to play the game. And that may be a big statement, but I, I stand by that. So 
I guess it would be no real surprise that you or any of your siblings would would inherit that you know that gene pool. I suppose, given the fact that there was so much of it floating around. Um, when did you start to realize that this is what you want to do? I want to actually follow in the footsteps of my uncle Graham and my and my father. Yeah, I think there were there were big factors. Don't get me wrong. I mean, as you mentioned, the the gene pool obviously plays its part. But I think the bigger factors for me was the environment. Growing up in South Africa, it's very much an outdoors environment. Um, I had a brother who was six years older than me, and you know, from an early age, I was just sports crazy. It, it wasn't really cricket. It was absolutely anything under the sun that was on the go. You know, whether it was soccer, rugby, tennis. Uh, cricket, squash, you name it. You know, for me, it was very much about playing sport. I just love being out there competing. Um, and then, you know, with his, as I say, with him being six years old, every time his mates came around, you know, I either had to lift my standards at whatever sport they were playing <laughs> if I wanted to participate with them, or else I could sit on the sidelines and watch. <clears throat> so, yeah, I think those all played the part. I, I think the key. Fundamental for me is uh, from my dad's perspective. You know, I often joke and say, "Who was the biggest influence on your career?" And it's, it's, I say, it's my dad because he was the convener of selectors who picked me to play for South Africa. But in all honesty, I think the key is that you learn the basics. And you know, for any kid out there, for any parents who want to try and help their youngsters out, I think if you can just teach them the basics um, at an early age, it gives them the best chance of succeeding and allows them to fly later on if if they've got the talent and if they've got the drive and motivation to want to do it. I think also I was, uh, God blessed me with an ability to be able to watch something on TV or watch people perform and then go away and, and sort of work it out. And, you know, whether it was tennis or golf or soccer or rugby, whatever it is, you know, kicking for poles or kicking torpedoes, I would sort of watch what the players were doing and, and then go and try it out for myself. So, yeah, I think God blessed me with a lot of good things. Obviously, the, the, the genes was one of them, having an older brother, and then also the ability to love sport and, and just be able to work on things. I mean, as you rightly say, it's, it's, the South African situation is very similar to, to Zimbabwe or vice versa, is that all the kids grow up playing the various types of sports. And then when did you realize that, uh, right, I've played rugby, I've played tennis, I've played soccer, everything else, uh, you know, with the cricket. When did cricket then become a favorite of yours? And when, when did you realize that this is the way that I'd like to go? Yeah, I think the key for me is I was always um, probably best at cricket than anything else. You know, as I played all the A teams, you play some representative stuff in the in the hockey and the the rugby and the soccer and whatever it may be. The key was the cricket. I always used to play in age groups above my age. You know, I was very fortunate to it at school. There was a coach, Graham Erin, who allowed me to play with an age group that was above mine. Uh, my age group was playing softball or slasball cricket at the time. And he allowed me to go and play with the hardball kids in a slightly older age group. And then Duncan Rankin picked me to play for the first team when I was in standard three, which is the first team was the standard fives. Right. So for three years, I played first team and also played representative cricket at that age. So yeah, I always knew I was, I was probably better at cricket than any of the other sports. But you know, when it was cricket season, I was playing cricket. And when it was rugby or soccer or hockey season, I was playing the other sports. It wasn't like I focused really until maybe the last year or so of um, of my um, trick of schooling when I actually played in the RPT hockey tournament and I broke my arm. 
And so I had five or, or six weeks off of being able to do nothing. My hockey season was finished. And then I really started to get my eye and wanting to try and make the SA school side for South Africa. And then from then, you know, it was almost like there was, you know, my body had grown by that stage. I was a late developer. Um, I was stronger. I started to bowl quicker and people started to take notice. So, yeah, it all worked out pretty well. And that was in, in 91. And then, as we all know, we were readmitted back into international cricket in 92. So I, I do say that God had his favor on me. that I was able to <laughs> come through at exactly the right time um, when international cricket was back in the fold. I, I notice you refer to God quite a bit. I, I assume that, you know, he, you obviously your faith is quite strong and that, in your opinion, God had a, a very big part to play in, in your achievements on and off the field as well, Polly. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, you know, I, I know where my talents come from. Uh, I didn't conjure them up on my own. Um, yes, I might have nurtured them with a bit of hard work and discipline and focus, but I do know where those have come from. And, and also just from a perspective of, you know, you go throughout the career and um, you try and handle yourself as best you possibly can. And I know I wouldn't have been able to achieve what I did or, or go about it in the way I did if it wasn't for having the influence of Jesus in my life. Yeah. You know, it, it helped keep me in perspective. Don't, don't get me wrong. I was often out of perspective and um, mm. out of sync and out of balance um, because when you thrust into that lifestyle as a, as a youngster, um, you know, your character hasn't really developed to be able to deal with everything that's been thrown at you. So it was a, it's a challenge, but, uh, you know, I know that I had to have the Lord keeping me balanced, realizing that, uh, you know, in the, in the greater scheme of things, uh, being a good cricketer doesn't really mean too much. And then also understanding that, um, you know, your, your skills are on loan for a short period of time, so use them as best you can. And now we'll fast forward to 1993. Well, so I, I did my schooling down at uh, in Worcester in the Cape, uh, the School for the Blind, but uh, still very much Zimbabwean, did my schooling there. So I had the privilege of listening to a lot of ball-by-ball radio commentary. Uh, 1992 was when I really started listening to it and then going into 93. And suddenly I heard the name Sean Pollock pop up. And, and I'm sure it must have been, correct me if I'm wrong, did you make your debut for what was then known as Natal in 93 with, with that? Be would that be correct? Ninety two, ninety three. Yeah, I think it was the ninety. I played a, a game. Was just a friendly for Natal in um, early ninety two. Mm. I think Northamptonshire had come out in a pre season tour, and then I really started to to play the odd game in ninety two, ninety three, as you mentioned. And I've, I've sort of burst onto the scene uh, as a one day player in many ways. Yes. And uh, the Ben Spencer and Hedges cricket, wow, that was just fantastic at that time too. You know, it was such the right environment. It was a good quality of cricket, a high standard. You know, the thousands of people used to come watch. So it really was a good schooling to try and prepare you to to get ready for international cricket and the challenges that you might face. But I think, yeah, also what helped me is I had a little bit of a decent slow ball. And at those times, not every person bowled a good slow ball. Absolutely. Uh, unlike <laughs> today where everyone's got three or four of them. And obviously working with Malcolm Marshall as well was, was fantastic at that time. Him and Graham Ford, almost in the tail, they brought in like a new regime. You know, Neil Johnson, the Zimbabwean, came through. Mark Brains, Dale Benkenstein, Lawrence Klusner, Ross Fienstra. We, we all sort of came through at a similar time. Doug Watson. 
and they tended to run with the youngsters. So it was a nice place to be in Natal in those early 90s. Absolutely. And, and you lead me beautifully to the next point is that, you know, as a youngster, you, you were playing with very established cricketers, uh, although they weren't too much older than you, but even so. So Andrew Hudson, John T. Rhodes, Peter Rawson, another former Zimbabwean was there as well. Big, strong Peter Rawson and Malcolm Marshall. I mean, that name just alone for any cricket lover sends shivers down your spine of, of pure delight and joy. Were you initially when you started, when you knew that you were going to be sharing the, the bowling duties with Malcolm Marshall, what were the feelings going through you? You would have been excited, I'm sure. Were you, were you pretty nervous as well, looking up to such an incredible, iconic figure of Test cricket? Yeah, I'll touch on the other guys first. I mean, like John T and Andrew had obviously played in the World Cup in, in 92. Yeah. And when those guys came back, you know, you realize that you're practicing with guys who are on the world stage. So that was huge. Peter Rawson had a big influence on my career as well. You know, just the approach to how well he bowled up front and how he kept it so tight. He'd often bowl his nine overs for like nine runs. <laughs> so I learned a lot of him too. But, um, you know, Malcolm Marshall was was absolutely huge from so many different reasons, you know. Um, yeah, there, there was a massive respect factor for him coming in. We hadn't seen much of him, you know. International cricket wasn't shown much uh, on on the TVs in South Africa in the years of growing up. But uh, I'd seen him at the World Cup, and then he had come to us, and we were so excited because uh, you know obviously pros were a big part of um, the domestic setup here in South Africa, and he was just going to be class. I mean, his record spoke for itself. And as I say, him and Forty were keen to get the youngsters through, which was another great uh, incentive for us to to be focused and and really give it us at all. But you know, the things he taught you, so like he teach you just obviously to respect the individual that's the other side, but to back yourself. You know that yes, that person might have a reputation and they can do whatever, but you've got the ball in your hand, and and you can make the play. He also taught me some good technical stuff. You know, in the one off season, I worked really hard and getting a much better wrist position and getting a lot stronger. And then also, you know, you just pick up things as you go along, fields that he sets, ideas that he comes up with, how he wants to get a batsman out, uh, flaws that he sees in the armory. But then also one of the big things, and, and people don't sort of recognize, is when you perform in the same team as an individual, you know, if you if you play next to Lionel Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo or something, and, and you outperform them on a certain day, it gives you a real boost of confidence. So every once in a while, I'd get five wickets and Malcolm would get nothing. And then you start to believe, well, hold on, you know, I've, I've outbowled one of the legends of the game. Um, you know, maybe I've got a little bit more that I can do and achieve. So that also gave you a huge boost of confidence. And he also gave us so many opportunities. You know, he wouldn't shy away from throwing us into the deep end in pressure situations. And those are all fast-tracking exercises that help you improve. And one of the things your teammates took a great deal of delight, and I remember this as well, even just as a young teenager listening from from school, was your ability, Sean, to hit people. And I don't mean this in a nasty way, but your bouncer. It was a lethal delivery. I mean, you were people often make fun of you uh, in the sense that uh, you know, towards the end of your career, you had lost a fair amount of pace. But in your younger de- younger days, you were slippery. You really were not slow at all, yeah. and you had an incredibly well, think, accurate bouncer. I think a lot of things. Played their part, you know. We were obviously playing on some green surfaces in in Durban. We right, used to right. call it they used to call it the lawn. <laughs> so those those did help the ball to get through at a, at a decent pace. Uh, you know, I put on a yard or two, and I had one of those short pitch deliveries, which as a batsman you don't enjoy. It's the one that sort of pitches just outside and then tends to follow you. So 
if you try and sway out the way, you think you've got it covered, it starts coming back at you. And I think that was the key to to those short pitch deliveries. <laughs> but, I mean, in those early days, you know, the, the, the surfaces in, in Durban, uh, the conditions in South Africa were very conducive to what I did. I just ran in and banged it in, like, back of a length and tried to get it to carry through nicely to the keeper. Only as I went on in my career did I learn that uh, subcontinent conditions aren't going to be quite the same. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I think also what it does is, you know, in many ways you have to have something that uh, catches the attention of individuals or people or makes you a bit of a talking point. And I think when I look back, it, it was definitely those short pitch deliveries and hitting people on the head that got people in the domestic circuit talking about me and, and saying that I had some pace. And then you come into the South African side and, and you do it similarly in your first test, your first test series. Uh, you know, it just gives you a bit more of a honeymoon period where people say, okay, well, we can see some good raw ingredients here and, and, uh, and he's got some pace and, and he troubles some batsmen and hurries them up a little bit. And then you can settle in and, and become more of, of what you, your body's made to do and more conducive to the line and length that I, I became later in my career. But I think you do need a, a bit of a catalyst moment or a catalyst performance or something that just shows people that you've got it to survive at the top level. And the nice thing was that when you made your debut in 95, 96, you were pretty much touted, I suppose, to be. And this is a, a, a saying or an expression that I personally don't like. I don't like it when they say this person will be the next Sean Pollock or the next Brian McMillan or the next Ian Botham. I like to use the phrase who brought similarities, you know. So, but anyway, you were touted to be the man who would take over from Brian McMillan in the all-rounder's berth. So I actually remember a good partnership between the two of you. You know, we're just over 50. You were batting at number nine and, and Big Mac at number seven. Did you learn quite a bit from Brian Mack? I mean, we don't really know a great deal about him other than he's just this big hulking man who was one of the world's better slip fielders, could take wickets with a heavy ball and scored runs at number seven as well. But was he quite influential, especially when you batted or bowled with him? You know, did, did he help out in many ways? Yeah, he did. Um, you know, I, I think what also he does, he brought a good balance to our side at that stage. And, and I think that's in many ways, I mean, you know, obviously Clive Rice probably would have been the first all-rounder since readmission, um, but he didn't get to play much after coming back after isolation. But uh, I think mine, Brian Mack was, was almost the guy who sort of led the way in, in many ways with regards to the all-rounders that followed down the line, you know, um, all of us being able to bat in a decent way. And, um, you know, obviously my strength was the bowling side. I think if we had to analyze Mac, Mac probably would have been, um, you know, more, more like a, a top line batsman who, yes. who contributed yeah. a, a lot with the ball. Yeah. But yeah, his presence, his job that he did, uh, his thought process to how he went about things. I mean, those were fantastic to, to have. And then also when you're bursting in as a youngster, you know, in a team setup, you can often say, okay, well, let's introduce someone young because we've got Brian Mack. Um, he's an experienced campaigner. He can bowl some overs if the youngster doesn't have a good day. And, you know, you give us some extra batting depth. So I think all those things definitely played into uh, my hands with regards to um, how my career unfolded. And then, uh, obviously, something that many people will uh, will talk about with a great deal of fondness is your partnership with Alan Donald. So, I mean, South Africa have been blessed over the years to have formidable partnerships. Your dad would have been in influential and instrumental with, with Mike Propti, I would imagine. Uh, and then after readmission, for a very long time, it was yourself and Alan Donald who were superb. So you had the raw pace 
of Alan Donald, and then you had the swing and the seam and the skill of yourself. That partnership, in my opinion, was one of the world's best partnerships for some time. What, what was it like feeding off someone like Alan Donald, who, in my opinion, uh, maybe also pushed you, pushed Alan Donald to achieve a bit better because not only were you bowling with him, but you were pushing him. And that's just a personal observation, by the way. I'm not sure if that's accurate or not. But to me, I often found that you bought the best out of Alan Donald as well. I mean, Alan was really established when I came in, so that was fantastic for me. You know, he had a, a reputation, uh, he had a, a real status in, in the international game already. And, you know, he was a wonderful performer and, and tended to give a lot of batsmen sleepers nights. So to join him and, and be part of the attack, you know, I obviously had my quicker deliveries at the start of my career, but I think we also complemented each other. You know, he, he bowled with the, the real pace and he bowled a fuller length and trying to push people back. Whereas I would just be consistent in my line and length. And, you know, I think often you'll hear reference to partnerships in the game of cricket more along the lines of batting, but, but bowling partnerships are, are just as vital. You think of someone like a Warren and McGraw combination where yeah. If you put the two of them on, um, you know, there's going to be a sustained pressure build-up for 10 or 12 overs. And, and that's when you can start to, to control the game and, and start to apply some pressure onto the opposition. So, yeah, it was great, you know, to have Alan the other end. You know, I always knew who was going to be looking to score of him. They were going to be worried about him and they are going to be looking to score of me. So it worked out nicely. <laughs> I just had to hit my errors and... Due to the fear that he was creating the other end, uh, they were going to try and come after me and it played into my hands. What was your, your favourite spell in Test cricket? So obviously the one that will spring to mind will be that incredible 7 for 87 in 42 overs in temperatures of close to 40 degrees in Adelaide on a typical Adelaide oval pitch, flat, lifeless. What were your, your plans executing those when you had to? I mean, Alan Donald, if I remember correctly, was injured in that last test match. So you had to shoulder the burden and you ended up with seven for 87 in 42 overs. How do you do that on a pitch like that? <laughs> well, there's a couple of contributing facts. First of all, I think it was the first time I ever played without Alan. And I was now, I got a phone call from Ali Bakhar to say, listen, Sean, you're going to have to really lead this attack well. All the best. We believe you can do it. And so that was a huge thing for me. You know, I felt like, hey, I've got this responsibility to lead this attack now. Come on, do the job. And, you know, it was against Australia. We wanted to try and level the series. And also, you talk about the Christian faith. When I walked back, there was a, a steeple. And every time I turned around and walked back to my mark, I look up and there was this big cross. <laughs> so I was, uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I just kept going. It was Bergwind conditions. I remember coming off the field and my, my shirt was bone dry and it was really hot. But, you know, I was having a good day. And when you perform well, you, you, you have this ability and energy to, to bowl a little bit longer and bowl in more extended spells than maybe on other days. And, you know, we, we were trying to win the game and, and we were on the front foot. So, yeah, I was just trying my best to try and win that game. Unfortunately, you know, you, you would like your best performance to be uh, one which uh, wins the match for the team. And we got awfully close, but for a bit of a technicality with a Mark Wall oh, dismissal. Yes. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a, a day where in many ways I, I think I earned the respect of of the team, the rest of the players in the unit, because of the the sort of spells I bowled and the performance I put in. I think probably my best performance, though, if I if I had to be totally honest, was one in Fazalabad, which was earlier. I think it was before that, where 
it was on the subcontinent and it was a flat surface and we had about 140 or to defend. Ah, yes, I remember. That third test match, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and I'd really been working hard. It was, it was almost at the time in my career where I'd been on the scene for two years playing for South Africa and, and I needed to develop something else to make me more effective on flatter surfaces, subcontinent conditions. And in that match, uh, you know, before leading up to it, I'd been working a lot on trying to get a bigger way swing again up front with a new ball in my hands and it hadn't really come right in the first two tests. But in that last innings, uh, it really came good. And uh, I think I picked up three or four wickets in about two overs, which set us on course to win. So, yeah, I think you always appreciate certain performances. And as an individual, you know what they are and, you know, the reasons why you've enjoyed it. Because sometimes you feel good, sometimes you don't. But I think that one was, was key for me because I did have a realization that, um, hold on, you have to develop something else here. Otherwise, you're going to get left behind. And that was a moment that I, I felt that I had. Would you just like to, for the sake of the listener, explain what happened with that Mark War technicality? I mean, I know what happened, but just it'll be good to hear it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. What happened there? Um, well, there was three Australian umpires, we'll put it that way. Um, <laughs> now, I, I, I bowled a bouncer and, and it hit him on the, on the shoulder. We thought it had come quite close to the glove. Uh, so it, it looped up to gully. And, you know, on the replays, it took its time to get to Gully. And by that stage, he had sort of tried to gather his balance again. And he was watching where the ball was going and the bat hit the stumps. So I don't think Simo had taken the catch by the time the bat made contact with the stumps. And in many ways, he had lost control. I think in one of the interviews afterwards, he said um, he got hit on the arm. His arm went numb. Um, he lost control of, of what he was doing and he just hit the, the stumps. And if, even if a helmet falls off and it hits... The stumps then obviously you you on your way. So we thought it was out and they reviewed it. But I think when you slow it down, it looks like there's a massive amount of time between when the when it makes contact and uh, when he actually hits the stumps. But so be it. Uh, on the review, they decided not out. And uh, the key was, I think it was about eight overs or so to go in the test and we had them seven or eight down. Uh, so you get him out and then we, we had, I think, Gillespie and McGraw or what to come. So we, we thought we could go on and win. And uh, unfortunately, for from a South African perspective, that was not to be. Uh, Polly, I, I want to, with the highlights, and there's so many in your illustrious career, uh, there unfortunately are sad points as well. And it, it's something that I know that is still very dear to your heart. So, you know, we, we're going to go gently with this. But unfortunately, then back in 2000, in my opinion, at the time, the world's greatest captain, Hansi Cronier, decided to come clean with uh, everything that he had been involved in. And obviously then justice had to take its course and some will will say that he was made a scapegoat of and that's another conversation for another day. But you were then thrust in an incredibly difficult position because one, you were the vice captain who suddenly now had to be captaining the team and three one-day internationals against Australia. But also, I mean, the human side of you would have kicked in as well because you would have been thinking, gosh, how is this going to turn out for Hansi? Why, Hansi? Why did you do all of this? Because, you know, it's the human aspect. So, and yet South Africa were able to win that series by two games to one. You won the first one in Durban, I remember, and then Australia found a way back at Newlands, Damien Martin batting beautifully. And then at third ODI, South Africa bowled magnificently to restrict Australia, then found themselves in a bit of trouble. And then, if I'm not mistaken, Lance Clusen and Mark Boucher got you over the line. But, I mean, there must have been so many conflicting thoughts going through your mind. Forget about the fact that you had to captain the team, but, you know, all the things happening off the field. How on earth did you cope with that, Polly? 
Yeah, it, it was a hard time. Um, you know, it was mixed emotions, as you said, because you do become almost like brothers. You know, you spend so many hours and days in each other's company. And I think the year before we had it unfolded, we had spent like 330 days as a team together and only 30 or 30 or 35 days in our own bed. So you do get to know everyone well. None of us thought anything like that was, was on the go. Um, and then, you know, when Hansi decided to, to man up and take it on the chin, you know, it, we, we struck with absolute shock. Uh, we didn't know the circumstances or the what had unfolded. And even at that stage when we went to play in the series, we didn't think anything untoward had occurred and that maybe he'd been involved in giving an odd bit of information to guys. So from my side, I was at staying at home because the game, first game was in Durban and you get a phone call in the morning to say, listen, you're now going to captain the side. I didn't know how long I'd be captaining for. And, you know, it's supposed to be a moment where you feel pretty proud about being given the honour <laughs> to go and captain your country. But under the circumstances, it didn't feel that way. You know, now you're in a pressure cooker uh, trying to have to think how you can regroup as a, as a unit. And we just had a good team meeting and discussed this, and there's nothing we can do about the Hansi thing. Everything will unfold in the next few months. But what can we do? You know, from a team perspective, we can get out there and perform as best we can. And as South Africans, we're pretty good at when we're facing adversity to be able to regroup and, um, you know, get behind each other. And that's what we did. We just focused on the series at hand, and we did really well to, to beat the Australians. And yeah, it, it was the, the start of my, my captaincy career. It happened under difficult circumstances. And going forward, you know, the first press conference when I got to Sri Lanka later on in that year and the new game plan, you know, what did we have to do? A lot of the power and decision-making was taken away from the captain. So in many ways you had your hands tied behind your back. And, you know, from our side, we just said, listen, we're the same team. We've got the same fielding fitness levels. We've got the same skills and players besides one or two that are missing. And we've got the same passion to always want to perform well. And we, we can't talk the talk. We, we have to walk the walk and, and perform and, and produce some some good skills and, and performances to get the crowd back on our side. And, and that was our challenge. And we'd managed to do that, you know, by the end of uh, my captaincy tenure, we, we got to number one in the world in the test arena and we played some good one-day cricket through in that period as well. So it was a difficult one for us and emotions were hard to deal with. And from the Hansi perspective, you know, you just have to appreciate him for, for having the strength of character to stand up to what he had done wrong. Yeah, you know, every single one of us makes mistakes, but he was prepared to stand up and take it on the chin and, and suffer the consequences of of whatever his actions brought onto him. So it was a difficult period for us to sit and watch it pass by and and see everything unfold. But, you know, I always look back and people say to me, you know, those kind of times, as an individual, as a sportsman, I think your performances define you as a sports person and, and what you can and can't do your skills-wise. But it's those off-field things, it's uh, the challenges you face, the situations that where things don't go according to plan, those are what develop your actual character. And at the end of the day, your sports career comes to an end, but your, your character has to survive with you until the end of time. So you you do find them difficult to go through, but I think they do give you a good perspective and a good learning and, and develop your character and skills better than uh, some of the, the times where things are going according to plan. Was there a, then a time when that 
pressure cooker situation and you know obviously as you alluded to when you captain your team your country you you do it with a great deal of pride but initially you would have been you know so at sixes and sevens in terms of thought processes and things happening away from the game sadly but then was there a time when you were actually able to focus and enjoy the captaincy focus on and enjoy captaining your country south africa did that change then yeah, I, I really enjoyed the, the, my time as captain. You know, it actually wasn't something I grew up wanting to do. Um, you know, at an early age, I wanted to play for South Africa. You know, I was captain of teams going along um, because often it was just the best player in the school team was the captain. And I, I would have had some leadership abilities. Um, but for me, it, it just was about playing. So when it was thrust on me, I mean, even when I became vice captain, I was thought, well, Hansi's going to be around for another four or five years. So there's no real chance that I'm probably going to take over. So it did come as a bit of a surprise. And, and I felt like I was growing into the role. I felt like I enjoyed it. You know, I was always one of those guys who enjoyed being involved when I was vice captain or just a player from a, a tactical perspective. You know, I like to be involved in, in the, the brain's trust of, of our planning so all those kind of things fitted in. But I suppose the hardest part is dealing with the media, um, the new challenges, the extra pressure that's on you, the man management of of every individual in the team, whether it be some of the coaching staff or, or whether it be just the players. You know, your, your job's almost never over as, as a captain. You have to continue to be involved and, and be thinking about others and, and thinking about all the challenges and the different angles that you can attack problems from. That's interesting because I've just about a couple of days ago listened to a very interesting interview Steve Waugh had with Ali Bacher and he was talking about certain players and which he didn't elaborate on obviously but certain players when he was captain that needed that little bit of extra man management or that extra management. Did you have that where players, I don't really necessarily want to say that their egos were bigger than the game but were there certain players who you had to calm down a bit and, and spend a little bit of extra time with to get them into line I guess? Yeah, you're dealing with 15 or 16 characters in, in the team unit, and not everyone thinks the same. Not everyone approaches the game the same. You know, there are some that are very easy to manage. Someone like a, a Jonty Rhodes, for example, you just need to wind him up, and, and off he goes. And, and he's a real team player, wanted to always help out, do whatever was required for the side. And then you have other guys who, you know, maybe not, don't rock the boat on the field uh, and they want to perform well, but off the field tend to push the boundaries. The, th- the thing about sports people is is that a lot of them have got certain skills and it's those skills that you, you're trying to tap into. It's those skills that you require for your team to be successful. But what often comes along with those skills can be certain behavior habits off the field or certain ways of doing things or certain outlooks on their life or on how they think things should run, which maybe don't fit into a team setup. And then you have to weigh it. In many ways, they're mavericks. You know, they, they, you need them for their skills, but there does maybe come a time where you have to weigh up whether the skills they bring into the party and with regards to the performances, is that being more constructive yeah, that that makes yeah, uh, that, that makes you, talk, you almost talk about a first floor management. You know, you you would think if you're in a playground and you're looking from the first floor down onto a team, and you're watching everyone behave and how they're interacting and how they're going about things, you have to have that perspective where you can look down and see what's going on, how everything is being affected, and then also have the ability to, from that first floor, look forward and and forward plan to see what's going to be required down the line, which sometimes when you're on ground level, you can't see. And as I say, I think it's it's very challenging for 
sports people. You know, people think of, of, of you know, think of someone who comes into a team at 20 or 21. Their characters haven't developed anywhere near the ability that it needs to be to be able to deal with the fame, the fortune, the attention, the pressure that they face in international arena. And, you know, I mean, you, took of, you think of CEOs or big managers, general managers, they tend to be like 45, 50 when they come into their own. Yes. And they've almost been through the mill, you know, they've they've experienced life, they understand how things work, they've probably married, they've probably got families. You know, a lot of their character skills have, have developed to be able to deal with certain issues. Whereas as a sportsman, you know, the world's your oyster, you come in and everything's thrown at you and this is it's too good to be true. You know, I often go to talks, I say, we expect our, our sportsmen to be role models at the age of 21, 22. I said, any of you have ever had a kid um, that's gone to varsity? If I had to go and take some video footage of what they got up to in their three or four years at varsity and had to show you, um, you know, would you say that they should also be a role model? So I think sometimes in the world, we just need to appreciate the sportsmen for their sporting abilities, their ability to bat, bowl, field, whatever it may be. And um, I think it cut them a bit of slack with regards to their character. It will develop in time, but sometimes it, it takes a little bit longer. And what were some of the real highlights, Sean, of your international career? So not necessarily as captain. What were uh, some of the things that you look back on and think, I will always treasure this, I will always remember this from a highlight perspective and then some of the not-so-nice things? Because, as I said earlier, sadly, in this career that we that we love so much, there are many, many highlights, but then there are quite a few things that, you know, unfortunately will always be in the memory from a, a sad perspective as well, I guess. Yeah, I think the biggest one is probably your debut. Um, you know, as a young kid, you, you sit there dreaming of playing, you you go and play with your brother, you put on the green cap because you want to be South Africa and, you know, you want to emulate dad and uncle and all those kind of things. So when you make a debut, I think that's probably the happiest moment of all because then all the dreaming, all the hard work, all the, the ideals uh, have sort of come to fruition and you're there, you've, you've got your cap and they can't take it away from you. I mean, there's plenty of performances individually that you enjoyed, um, you know, as a, as a team, you know, the, the, the success is to, to really face challenging situations and to come up with game plans about how you want to do something and those game plans to work and you win a test series in India and Pakistan and in the West Indies when it didn't happen all that often. You know, to go and win the Commonwealth gold medal it was fantastic. Um, and for me to captain that was, was really good. And, and just our general performances, you know, and to be such a proud sporting nation so to go out all the time and, and give a lot of people pleasure about the way you played and the results you achieved and then on the other side of the scale you know world cups i mean they were always a bit of a nemesis for us we we had the team on all occasions to win every world cup that we went to or that i went to but we didn't manage to get over the line we we're often beaten by a strong unit in, in which was australia um, but then obviously was a made a few problems for ourselves and didn't perform as well as we could have at times. So those were, were obviously disappointing. And, you know, you, when you get fired as captain or when your career comes to an end, you're never quite ready for those things. So, yeah, you do. You get shaped and and you have a lot of success, which you enjoy, and a lot of fond memories and friendships you create and experiences that you just would never give back for the world. But you do have to also deal with the odd little somber time and, um, and disappointment. So, 
yeah, as I say, I think they're great. They, they do shape you, and in many ways, they give you a good understanding. And what was I mean that that whole fiasco with the Duckworth Lewis and uh, not quite getting it right in the two thousand and three World Cup, losing to Sri Lanka, and then you had to bear the brunt of it, which I'm afraid to say, seventeen years later, still hurts me personally. But now you had to play under a man who undoubtedly was born to lead. There is no doubting that. Now, whether he was a bit young to be captain your side uh, at the time, I don't really know. Some people will say yes, others will say no. What was it like for you now to suddenly, you know, be playing under this this 22-year-old who had the talent and the ability to score runs and undoubtedly was a leader, but the way that he was put into the captaincy role may be questioned. How did you, did you struggle with that? Or was it just something that you, you kind of say, well, you know, you wipe the blood off your knees, like almost like having a fall as a kid, clean up and get on the bike and, and continue. Yeah, that's what you have to do. Um, I mean, I had no issues with Graham. I actually recommended him when, um, when there was a discussion at the point of me losing my captaincy as the person who should probably lead the team going forward. But, you know, the, the Duckworth Lewis, I mean, I, I never had the paper or yeah. um, was never involved in the sheet. So, you, you know, you have to go to the press conference and take it on the chin as the leader. And then, you know, often after World Cups, it's either the coach or the captain that tends to have to go um, in order to explain the, the loss away. But, yeah, after that, it, it was challenging because, as you say, you lead the side for three years and then you have to bite your lip at, at times, you know. And as a human being, you do have the emotions of you know, that you have to deal with the normal ones of, of anger or frustration at the fact that you've been kicked out of the, of, the, of this job and – that um, a new person's in charge and they want to go a different direction. Um, sometimes you don't agree with them, but you have to realize, hey, I'm, I'm not in control anymore, so I can give my opinion, but um, I have to support the decision that's made. And, you know, at that time, I think for the first game, I, I was no longer opening the bowling. I was brought on as first change and I'd, I'd sort of opened the bowling for South Africa my whole career. So it was like, wow, okay, th- this is going to be different. It wasn't long before I went back to the the, the opening bowling role, but you know, little decisions like that is uh, is challenging. But as I mentioned earlier, you know, my big thing I wasn't about wanting to captain South Africa. That wasn't my big goal. But I, I just love playing for South Africa, so I had to realign and spend a lot of time chatting with my wife and coming up with the best game plan going forward. And we discussed it. And what was the goal? You know, the goal was still to play for South Africa, so you need to put the other one behind you and move on and you know what role could you play you could now help younger guys come through be a support for the captain which as a captain you're always looking for uh, you're always looking for people to to have your your back and, and to try and help you out where they possibly can and you don't always get that but I hadn't having experienced the captaincy for three years and you and understood what I could do to be a good support so I tried to do that and as I say help you people like your de Villiers and your Dale Staines and those young guys to come through. So, yeah, it was a, a realignment for me and just enjoyed the rest of, of the career as it unfolded. And as a commentator and a former captain and a former test player, are you happy with the way that uh, cricket is going in, in terms of development and everything in South Africa? Are you happy with the future? Are you happy with the way it's being run? Are there concerns? Yeah, I think there would be some concerns, you know, particularly after what's happened over the last year or two and the financial situation they find themselves in also you've lost some star players you know your de Villiers is your stains your umlers you don't replace those overnight and i don't know if enough has been done to make sure we've nurtured our talent pool well enough to be able to 
replace them. Um, you don't replace those guys overnight, so it's going to take two years or three years or so. Uh, but, you know, decisions have been now been made, and, and you hope that going forward um, we can rectify things from, from a South African cricket perspective because we love being winners, we love performing well, and if we can manage things as well as possible, that gives the players on the field the best chance. So therein lies the challenge. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I always used to look back and think, gee, where's the next Dale Stain coming from? Where's the next A.B. de Villiers coming from? But uh, we've got a remarkable ability and a bit of a conveyor belt here that happens through our, our good schooling structure and the school cricket that takes place is that guys tend to come through, you know, upsteps Rabada, upsteps Ngidi, Aidan Markham looks like he could be a real class player, Quentin de Cox come through. So hopefully we find a few more of those and um, and continue to perform well because we always want to be a team that's competing to be the best in the world. I think that's where we've it's been a strength of ours for the 30 years that we've been back since readmission. Mm. Um, and we need to try and keep that focus. Gosh, it's amazing to think, isn't it, Polly? I mean, I remember that that first tour back to India at the end of 91, like it was yesterday. And uh, yeah, as you say, it's yeah. coming up to 30 years. That's unbelievable. So just to conclude, Polly, uh, and it's been wonderful chatting with you, what is the future now for Sean Pollock? You Obviously, there's so many things that we don't know that you're doing behind the scenes, but I heard a little rumor on Twitter that Graham Smith has uh, also roped you in and, and got you involved with a few things. What are you? What is the future for you? What are you going to be involved in? <laughs> yeah, well, it's, I think with this isolation, obviously, to get coaches to particular provinces is, is quite challenging. So yes. Graham's just asked me if the guys do, if in lockdown, if if you're allowed to do some training in Durban, can I help him out? So that's where we're at with that. You know, obviously, still the commentating I do. But, um, yeah, I think there's seasons in your life, and, and this has been a, a fantastic season for me with regards to the commentating and the time spent at home. Uh, I was very fortunate to have a beautiful wife, Trisha, who who taught me so many uh, good things off the field, um, you know, from a, a family perspective, from a relationship perspective, from a raising kids perspective. And it's been great to just be at home and, and enjoy and watch the kids grow up. They're now 16 and 13, so it's not long before they head off to varsity and, and then start their you know, own lives. So we won't get to see much of them, I'm sure. You know, they'll start to be um, living and then following their own dreams. So this period's really been great. Um, you know, the season of, of being at home as much as possible, seeing them grow up and, and being involved in, in all aspects. And, and obviously, it's also nice to, to have a time with my wife where, I mean, she makes all the massive sacrifices when you playing, you know, you're away from home for so long. The the kids are raised in many ways for the first five or six, seven years of their lives. Without you there much of the time, everything else is managed and my wife sacrificed her career to be able to allow me to live my dream. So to have another period where we can sort of lay foundations as a family and, and enjoy each other's company has been cool. And going forward, you never know. We'll, we'll have to see how our things unfold. Um, you know, I, I don't know what plans God's got for me. And it's been also a good time just to, to regroup and come back down to earth and understand the world from a true understanding perspective. And uh, yeah, I look forward to the journey. Sean Pollock, it's been a privilege, an honor, and a pleasure uh, talking to you on Dean at Stumps. Thank you so much for your time and wishing you nothing but the very best for the future. All good. Thanks, Dean. And that was a fantastic interview with Sean McLean Pollock. Uh, you may call me a liar. I, at the top of the show, said that he'd scored 3,782 runs. 3,781 was what he scored. 
call me a liar for one run. Well, we're going to have another big one. We have another big one lined up for you very soon. You'll be hearing from former captain of England and very successful captain Michael Vaughan, who speaks about the success success of uh, the Ashes in 2005 and just a very good old chat with him as well. Thank you very much for listening to Dean at Stumps. We'll be back pretty soon with Michael Vaughan. Until then, please stay safe. Goodbye. Listening to Dean at Stumps, Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket podcast. 